I recently got to sit down with Frederick Branchik. Frederick is the founder of Polar Signals, a new always-on zero instrumentation profiler. Before Polar Signals, Frederick spent time at Red Hat and Core OS, where he worked on Kubernetes and Prometheus. In this interview, Frederick and I break down Polar Signals' architecture and its main components, Parka and FrostDB. Parka is of particular interest to me as it is able to achieve its minimally invasive profiling claims using an eBPF filter that samples the entire OS's stack at about 19 hertz. Data is then passed to a server and stored in FrostDB, an embedded storage engine built on top of DataFusion and Parquet. And now, Frederick Brenchik. All right, so I thought we would start with Prometheus, actually. You know, we were emailing back and forth, and you mentioned that you were a committer on Prometheus. So how did you end up working on Prometheus? Yeah, so that was um, basically in 2016, I joined a company called CoreOS. I don't know if people still remember CoreOS. Um, we were kind of one of the early Kubernetes companies. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, we were, we were working on automatically updating software. And we were kind of thinking about, you know, if we're automatically updating all of the software um, all the time, right, we need to understand whether the software is doing what it's supposed to be doing and, you know, doing that successfully before, during, and after upgrades. Um, and so... We quickly identified, you know, monitoring and observability was going to be super key in Chorus's business. And so, you know, at the time, Prometheus was kind of uh, kind of the up and coming thing. Um, and uh, Chorus hired one of the kind of major um, maintainers at the time already, and he hired me. And then that's how I kind of got started. And then quickly became a maintainer of the Pr uh, Prometheus project. And kind of everything in that intersection of Prometheus and Kubernetes. Um, either built or, you know, at the very least, um, left my fingerprints on. Um, and then ultimately, through all of that collaboration, I actually ended up becoming a tech lead on the Kubernetes project as well. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. So you've worked on Kubernetes as well. Yes. <clears throat> and so uh, how did that experience lead you towards Polar Signals, which is the stuff you're working on now? Yeah. So um, just maybe for, for setting, setting the scene at Polar Signals, we build... Um, continuous profiling software. So we basically profile all of your infrastructure all the time and then record this data so that you can analyze it later. Um, and that basically happened because Chorus was acquired um, by Red Hat in 2018. Um, and um, I ended up basically becoming architect for all things observability. So we had kind of the classic metrics team, logging team, distributed tracing team. And, you know, we were working on this super cutting edge observability software but we kind of found ourselves manually profiling our software pretty much every single day because we were working with these super performance sensitive pieces of software, right? Like Prometheus, Kubernetes, Jaeger, and so on. Um, and so for us, it was second nature to do profiling anyway. And then I read this white paper that Google published a couple of years before that, um, that that's the infamous Google white profiling paper where Google basically, they were the first ones to describe this publicly as to my knowledge, at least how they're kind of doing infrastructure-wide profiling. And that that's where um, it really, really, you know, um, came to me that, like, we need to be dealing with profiling just as systematically as we do with metrics, logs, and profiling. Um, and it's really observability just like everything else. You always want the profiling data that you don't have. Yeah, so so um, you mentioned you were doing it manually uh, at that point. And that's, frankly... Uh, you know, prior to some of the APMs and stuff that I've worked with, how we, how I've done it in the past as well. Um, how, how did that look for you guys? Were you like connecting to production? How, how are you doing the manual uh, sample? I assume it was sampling or profiling uh, before then. 
right? Um, so in the Go ecosystem, profilers are pretty good. Um, and basically um, in the Go ecosystem, and this came basically also straight out of Google, um, it's like built into the Go runtime that you can have like an HTTP endpoint uh, that you hit and it will return, like it will record a profile, profile over, let's say 10 seconds and return you um, with that data. Uh, so that's basically what we were doing all, all day long, you know, in Kubernetes port forwarding um, and doing that, for example. But the, um, the difficulty with that is one, you know, you actually need to connect with production, right? And that comes with all the potential, you know, problems as with SSHing and so on. Um, but maybe more importantly, you don't have, like I said, this data that you really want to have, which was like at this weird time when there was this CPU spike or when an oom kill has already occurred, right? You always want the data that you don't have. And this is kind of a theme that we keep seeing throughout all of the observability. And we, we saw that trend basically also from uh, like Nagios checks to like Prometheus and like Datadog, right? Where we went away from just checking, is this thing up, is this thing up, is this thing up? To like recording information as time series and alerting on the time series data, right? And now that we're doing this with profiling as well, we can do super interesting analysis. Not only do we have all of this data throughout time, we can also say, hey, I have this performance regression in this new version of our software. Tell me all the differences of CPU time from this previous version to this new version, right? And boom, down to the line number, we can see exactly where new CPU time is now being spent. Right? Like this kind of analysis wasn't even possible before. And if you know if it was possible, you maybe were able to like grab some profiling data from the previous version because you rolled back and took some profiling data again, and then uh, took some profiling data again. So just like this super weird uh, dance to get the right data. And now you know it's just always available. Gotcha. So, uh, to re to recap, basically, you were doing manual sampling against Go, and they exposed an HTTP endpoint. That makes sense. Okay. Um, I think that's loosely. I, I come from you know Java world. That's sort of loosely equivalent to what we were doing in, in JMX land. Um, and there's you know I, at least in the Java side, there's uh, sort of performance penalties you can get if you don't sample properly, and then you can turn on like HProf and sample and stuff. So there's sort of a trade off between. Uh, performance and, and granularity. It sounds like you were doing more point lookups at that time. So you, there was some issue and you would go to the thing and say, hey, basically give me stack traces for a 10 second window and let me see what it looks like. Exactly, super reactive basically, right? Gotcha. Um, okay. if, if we were good, maybe we were running some benchmarks for a very specific thing that we wanted to optimize, but also building those benchmarks is really difficult, right? Um, to actually have something that behaves truly like production. Now. When like we we use polar signals ourselves all day long, right? And it's this like super fast um, like feedback cycle where we can actually be sure this is exactly how it behaves in production because it is production data. Yeah, right? yeah, that makes sense. Were you guys doing any uh, sampling at that point um, at the OS level? I think you you what we've been talking about so far is really at the application level, right? Um, but there's alongside the application stack traces, there's a whole bunch of information around you know disk and all that kind of stuff. The thing I think about. Um, at, at LinkedIn back in the day, we ran uh, SAR, which was this like uh, system activity report thing that came with, I think, with Red Hat Linux um, that would allow you to sort of sample and, and record disk stuff. And that I, looks a little bit more like traditional observability. I'm assuming you were marrying up uh, what you were doing with the more traditional uh, stuff. Is that true? Yeah, we, we were, were doing that kind of stuff more through like traditional, <laughs> we call it yeah. not traditional metrics, right? Like at the time, <laughs> Prometheus was still like, you know, just, just starting to be implemented within companies. But um, yeah, like metrics is what we were using for that. But this is actually a, a great uh, kind of segue into also what changed with Polar Signals because um, something like when we started Polar Signals, we went about it a little bit naively, right? We came from the Go ecosystem. We we're like, profilers are amazing, right? Like collection is a solved problem. 
Um, turns out, you know, they're only great in, in the Go ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, and so ultimately what we ended up doing is we ended up building a profiler completely from scratch um, using eBPF, mm -hmm. um, which allows us to kind of grab this data at the operating system level. Um, and through a lot of really hard work, we now basically have this completely zero instrumentation profiler. You only need to like add this profiler to your to your host, and it starts profiling everything, no matter what language you have. Yeah. Um, Great. On that yeah. List. Yeah. So, so I think let's start to dig into polar signals. But before we, I think we've kind of been talking about profilers without giving a really solid yeah. uh, definition of what what exactly we're talking about. So, can you give me sort of in your view how you define uh, a profile and and why it's useful? Yeah. So profiling. Profiling tools have basically been available ever since software engineering started because what profiling uh, gives us is down to the line number and the function call stacks that led to some amount of resource usage. So it's essentially a stack trace and a number. Um, that's all that profiling data is. Um, and that resource could be anything. It could be CPU time, it could be memory, it could be file IO, it could be network IO, anything really. Um, most commonly, we see CPU profiling data, also because it tends to be the most expensive thing on a cloud bill. And so naturally, that's the one thing that um, people people look at when they want to optimize for cost. But at the same time, CPU um, also tends to be the thing that you look at when you optimize for latency. Um, because if it's not some other I.O. call that you're doing, there's basically only CPU time left um, to optimize. And so that's kind of what we also see our customers doing um, most of the time. Gotcha. Okay. So let, yeah, let's dive into Polar Signals now. Um, so this is a new company you've started. When, when did you kick it off? So actually, we've, we've done quite a bit of R&D. Um, so the company was founded um, about three years ago, um, mm -hmm. and we launched our pro product publicly about two months ago. Gotcha. Um, and so somewhere in the midst of, of this is uh, are sort of two other projects. One of them is Parka, and the other is FrostDB. Yeah. Um, so what are the relationship of those two things to what Polar Signals is doing? So um, the profiler um, is part of the, the Parka project. Okay. So Parka is essentially two components. One is the agent, that's the collection mechanism, everything that we've talked about so far. Um, and then the server side is kind of the Prometheus equivalent. Um, it's a single statically linked Go binary, like extremely easy to get started with, extremely easy uh, to deploy. It kind of ships everything in one binary, the storage, an API, a UI, everything in one box. Um, but similar to Prometheus, we very intentionally chose not to make this a distributed system because you know distributed storage is a very, very difficult uh, problem to solve. Um, and we kind of also decided that was something that um, at least for a start, we're gonna, if we manage to, we're gonna try to figure this out as the business. And for a start, it'll be our kind of competitive advantage. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we started. And FrostDB is the storage layer within Parka. And it's also what our distributed storage within Polar Signals is based on. It's gotcha. kind of our, our RocksDB for the columnar database. Okay. Okay. So so I think the the relationship is, is essentially FrostDB is embedded time series database. You have a single node uh, you know, store, uh, system built on that, which is Parka. Yeah. Um, that also comes with a CPU profiler, which is the eBPF thing you talked about, exactly. right? And then, <clears throat> excuse me, Polar Signals is essentially the, the cloud-hosted version of this. Precisely. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, so why don't you run me through um, the eBPF CPU sampling stuff? I think that's really interesting to me. So first off, 
I think I'll, I'll take a shot at, at, at summarizing eBPF because I'm, I'm very much a novice in that area. And then you can correct me where I'm wrong. But my understanding of eBPF is essentially it's an, an interface that allows you to implement modules that go into the kernel and uh, in Linux and allow you to uh, sort of almost like a, uh, you know, uh, filter chain or something inject in between kernel calls from the application space. Is that loosely correct? Yeah, 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 definitely. I think that that's, that's pretty accurate. Essentially, it's a virtual machine within the kernel that you can you can write C code for. Um, and when you load it into the kernel, it kind of goes through this thing called the verifier to make sure that whatever you're going to be executing within the kernel is actually going to be safe to be executed there. So it makes sure that like certain kind of areas of memory can be accessed. Um, it's all basically read only except for very specific mechanisms. Um, and then the way that um, eBPF programs are run are through triggers. And that can be exactly like you said, it can be a syscall being called, it can be a network packet being um, transmitted or received. Or in our case, we register a custom event using the um, perf, perf events subsystem within Linux, where we're basically saying every X amount of CPU cycles call our program. Um, and what our program does is it figures out when our program starts, we get just a pointer to the, to the top of the operating system stack. Right? Like when we, if we go back to like computer science and how um, kind of programs get executed, they have a stack, right? Um, and the operating system does as well. And so when our program is called, we only get basically a pointer to the very top of the stack. Um, and in a simplified form or in the best case, something called frame pointers are present. Um, and what that means is that there's a, there's a register that's reserved that tells us where the next lower st um, stack frame is. Um, and so in that case, we can just walk this linked list essentially, and at every point we collect what address um, of the instruction um, of, of the instruction is, and that's essentially what we can then use to translate to a function name. Mm -hmm. um, that's basically how programs work, um, and so this is how we then get that function call stack. And if we see that same function call stack multiple times, statistically speaking, we're spending more time in this function. Gotcha. So I think there's two things that I want to unpack there. One of them is. You said it, when you're lucky, uh, there are the references to the subsequent frames, right? And then the other one is, you know, my my instinct is that these these frames are essentially just you know bags of bytes, and so you to make it useful to the developer, you need to somehow attach it to what would look more like a traditional stack trace that you would see as a developer, which has the method name, the return, the parameters, all that kind of stuff, package, all that. So how how do yeah. those two things happen? <laughs> So um, frame pointers um, are kind of a hot topic, actually. We actually just um, launched this collaboration together with Canonical, where frame pointers are not now going to be um, the default configuration um, for compilers with, um, within the um, Ubuntu packages, unless the package specifically overrides and says, I want to omit frame pointers. Because basically, this is kind of coming from the 32-bit world where we had a certain number of registers. I forget exactly the, the amount. I think it was eight registers, general purpose registers. And reducing what, that by one, on, only having seven, that actually makes a big difference, right? Uh, but now we have 15 or 16 general purpose registers. Um, and it actually ends up making quite a bit less of a difference. In most um, uh, benchmarks, you see absolutely no difference. Of course, you'll find edge cases for um, for these things, there's, for, exa for example, the um, hottest loop within the Python interpreter basically makes use of exactly 16 registers. Um, and therefore, when you enable frame pointers, it has a major performance um, degradation. Gotcha. So, so, so that, just to 
make sure I understand. It sounds like the reason you would want to disable frame pointers is for performance. Exactly. Yeah. That's basically the, the only reason. You, you also get a, a little bit smaller of a binary because essentially it's instructions that need to set and retrieve the frame, frame pointer. Okay. So in that, in that world, your claim is essentially most of the time, especially with the Ubuntu package work you've been doing, you're going to have frame pointers. And in the case where you're not, does polar signals just, uh, what does it do? <laughs> yeah. So we can still, we can still uh, profile everything. And this is also part of, of what actually makes our profiler very innovative. Um, so in the previous world, um, when you use the profiler like perf, Linux perf, what it does is it copies the entire operating system stack into user space where it can then be unwinded synchronously using something called unwind tables. This is a special section in um, x86 binaries and the x86 API specifies that this section must be present. Otherwise Linux basically says, I don't know how to run um, or you know, execution of this program is undefined. Um, and this is the same way as how like C++ exceptions um, work. Some, maybe you've seen this before, like when you don't have debug infos um, included in a C++ binary and it has an exception stack, right? all you get are like memory addresses. And you need to put those memory addresses into a tool like adder to line to um, convert those addresses into function names. Um, but basically these unwind tables, uh, we needed to optimize very much so that the eBPF verifier would be happy with us still um, you know, doing everything that we need to be doing. Because something that we didn't man uh, mention earlier with the eBPF verifier, it also limits um, how many instructions can be run. And um, it basically, one of the ways how it ensures that what you're running within the kernel is safe to do is it basically solves the halting problem by saying you cannot run basically Turing complete um, programs. So you can't have um, loops that can potentially be endless. Everything has to be bound, um, all of these kinds of things. Um, and so this was a really big part of what makes our profiler really, really interesting because it basically works under every circumstance. However, walking a linked list, which is frame pointers, is still way cheaper than doing table lookups, uh, doing some calculations with the offsets, loading a bunch of registers, writing a bunch of things, and then doing each jump, right? Yeah. So having frame pointers is still very, very much preferable. And also this entire dance with the um, unwind tables, not every tool out there is going to have the kind of resources that we had in order to make that happen, right? Um, if we look at debugging tools, you know, maybe they want to figure out where some network packet came from. You know, for this one-off thing, people are not going to put that amount of um, kind of engineering work into making that happen. Gotcha. So the unwind table exists in the, the binary. And I, I'm guessing, are you guys doing some sort of like prefetching and caching or like how are, okay. So, so essentially you read this binary and keep it somewhere. And then your EBPF filter is able to access that in memory versus having to do full discrete and all that stuff every time it calls. Exactly. We also heavily optimize it so that searching for this data is very, very fast. Um, and then um, the, we could fill the entire bucket up episode just with this, but like long story short, this unwind information itself is Turing complete. Um, <laughs> and so we need to do our utmost best to basically try to interpret this information as much as possible so that the eBPF program needs to do as little work as possible so yeah. that it will, um, you know, predictably halt. Gotcha. And so one of the things I was wondering about eBPF, uh, I've never written a, a filter or anything. So I'm, I, like I said, I'm very much uh, new to this. 
Um, the, the, the question I have is around state and, and I think we're kind of getting at it here with this caching stuff. So my assumption would be, you know, the, the, the validator is not going to allow you to keep anything in, in state-wise beyond memories letting you, how are you managing the caching state? That you're doing? Yeah. So there, there's, um, I, I spoke earlier about, uh, kind of writable space, right? I, I said that eBPF is basically read only um, and that there are some exceptions to this. And this is basically one of those exceptions and they're called BPF maps. And it's exactly the thing that's used. The only thing that you can use to communicate from user space to kernel space and vice versa. And basically what we do is we populate these maps with this optimized, um, with these optimized unwind tables, which then the BPF program can use and read while it's doing the unwinding. And this gotcha. is also how then the resulting data is communicated back to user space. Gotcha. Okay. So continuing to pull on this thread, um, you've got your unwind table that's loaded in this map. Uh, the, the filter is getting invoked, um, by the Linux kernel. And how is the sampling set up there is I'm assuming that's, there's some config file or something that you set, but how does that, uh, manifest itself as, uh, you know, say 1% of the calls or something like that? Yeah, so um, like I said, what we do is we register something called a perf event, which um, causes the kernel to call our program every X amount of cycles. And essentially we calculate, you know, if we want, let's make the calculation simple for this calculation, we want a hundred samples per second, mm -hmm. right? That would mean that each sample represents statistically 10 milliseconds, right? Um, and so if we see the same function call stack 10 times, mm -hmm. statistically speaking, we have spent 10, uh, 100 milliseconds within this function. And okay. the longer we end up doing this, the higher the statistical significance gets, right? Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. And these uh, callbacks that you register, are they, I'm trying to get the grasp on the granularity. Is it for the whole OS or is it per process or per thread? How, how does that? Uh, great question. So essentially we see the entire operating system stack. And so we, we end up unwinding the kernel stack. We end up unwinding the user space stack. Um, so we get everything. Okay. We get exactly the state of the world of this CPU at this point in time. And you know, I would assume developers are generally only interested in their Go binary that's running or whatever. So is there some way to configure, hey, only pay attention to this subsection of the tree? Or So um, that's something that you would do on the query end because okay. Um, okay. There, are, there are lots of cases where you actually want to know what happened here, mm -hmm. right? Like, especially if you work on um, super performance sensitive pieces of software, you want to know there was um, like a, an L1 cache miss, right. And we needed to, or some page fault and we needed to load this memory. Right. Um, yeah, so that's fascinating. And that gets toward, uh, what I was talking about earlier about the, the SAR, uh, files that we used to have in, in Red Hat, where you could sort of look into, uh, that kind of stuff. We use them heavily for Kafka, for example, to determine when there was a page cache miss, cause it turns out that, uh, when you're, you know, streaming data, everything exists in the page cache in memory. And so the second you miss that, uh, latency yeah. goes through the roof. Um, so it's interesting to, to note that this approach lets you very uh, fluidly mix together the OS level and the application level stuff. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. Okay. So now I think I'd like to dig into uh, what you, what you do once you get the sample. Cause a, I, I would imagine that the amount of data that you're dealing with in that sample is actually, you know, fairly substantial given, even if you're doing it a hundred times per second, like that's, a, <laughs> could potentially be a, a lot of data in that, in those frames. Um, so how do you get that stuff, um, you know, into Parka or, um, well, let's start with Parka and then maybe we can, we can unwind the polar signals aspect later, but how do you get the data off the eBPF, you know, in memory thing into, into Parka? Yeah. At, at the end of the day, um, like polar signals is not significantly more interesting than Parka. It's just 
the distributed version and there are lots of problems that need to be solved in that but you know conceptually yeah. speaking it ends up being quite similar um so basically the agent um every 10 seconds um or basically we wait um for this data to be populated within the bpf map for 10 seconds and then we dump all of that data um and you know the agent just keeps on going forever but every 10 seconds we take what happened over the last 10 seconds and send that off to a parka compatible api and Polo signals cloud just happens to be a parka um, compatible API. Gotcha. So there's the, the, again, the, the sort of, uh, DMZ between your, your BPF filter and the outside world is this map and, uh, the samples are getting written into the map. And then on the other end, there's an agent reading the map and, and, um, and writing it out to, to Parka is, is just like a go, uh, sorry, a, a protobuf gRPC based thing. Okay. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and I think one thing that's interesting there is, uh, from a security perspective, uh, is the only thing that has access to the, these samples the the Go agent? How does that uh, accessibility stuff get managed? Does that via the kernel? Yeah. So um, actually, it's funny that you mentioned security. So from a security perspective, this is actually and this is more of a byproduct. It wasn't really our intention, but it's actually way more secure than doing uh, profiling like with a tool like Perf because we can do all the unwinding in kernel. We don't have to do that thing where we copy the entire operating system stack. Um, into user space because absolute worst case you've just copied a private key into like readable user space right that can be potentially devastating for security purposes the the um the, the only data that we communicate from kernel space to user space are the memory offsets into the binary um i see, I see. and actually making sense of that is what happens on the server side um like the, the translation of what does this memory address actually mean okay so the agent is is sending the stacks over to the the parka server and i think from there uh you know we touched on this earlier but there's a path by which that data gets into the disk via frost db so can you run me through what that write path looks like yeah i mean the the write path is um like between like parka receiving the grpc call to um uh writing to frost db is not complicated so basically um FrostDB works on, um, inserts have to be arrow records, Apache arrow is this like in memory um, representation um, for column or data. Um, and so basically all we do is we basically convert um, this protobuf to arrow and insert it into uh, FrostDB. The only thing that I um, also mentioned is that we basically look at, okay, which binaries um, were involved in this data um, and we basically maintain some metadata about this because um, what we insert into FrostDB is basically only these memory offsets. Um, we still need to, um, when, when, the, when the human looks at this data, we still want to translate that memory address to the actual function name, right? right. Um, so there's some, some other stuff that we can talk about later that needs to happen there. But in terms of gRPC API to arrow, it's really just one converting one format to the other. Yep. Yeah. So I spent a little bit of time digging into the Frost DB. So once this, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, arrow record gets into Frost DB land, it's kind of an interesting engine that you've set up. Um, can you walk me through like what Frost DB does and how it differentiates between <clears throat> some of the other columnar stores that are out there? Yeah. So I think basically the the biggest difference is something that we call dynamic columns, um, and it's kind of uh, similar to um, like white column databases like with Cassandra, um, where essentially um, we, I come from the Prometheus world, right? And I want to be able to have my user-defined dimensions that I control. I want to make the system 
the way that my organization functions and not have the tool force some some able some dimensions onto me, right? So that was always a core belief that we had for any observability data. Um, and so we felt for profiling data, this needed to be true as well. I need to be able to slice and dice my data on whatever dimension is useful to me, whether that's data center, whether that's region, whether that's node, whether that's you know Kubernetes namespace, or you know you have this homegrown system and you have totally different words for these things. Um, or service names, whatever it is, right? You need to be able to map your organization onto the tool. And so being able to have these kind of dynamic dimensions, but still be able to search by them very quickly is what inspired us to essentially build a database ourselves. Um, because these are kind of two things that are basically conflicting, right? Very fast aggregations and very fast searching. Um, and very fast aggregations is why we chose a columnar layout. Um, that's kind of the nature of every columnar database, right? Like you want to be able to do some number crunching on a lot of numbers very quickly. That's when you, you know, in a nutshell, end up choosing a columnar database. But the combination of being able to also search for all of these dimensions relatively quickly is why we ended up building this database. And the way you can think of it, and you know, I'm conceptually saying this in, in reality is not always true, but the way you can think of it is that all the data is always globally sorted. And so because of that property, we can basically do a binary search and end up everywhere of what we're searching for within a binary search um, away. Um, again, data is not always actually sorted, but the engine ensures that enough metadata is around and that enough um, is known that we can actually still do, um, do this in a very fast way. Gotcha. And so um, the way that this is implemented, as I understand it, is essentially that you've got um, an, L an LSM Right, and the first level of that LSM is a uh, is row based, right? And so you're you're writing records down rather than columns, and then subsequent levels of the LSM it gets compacted into column based levels. Is that? It's correct? actually already columnar, but um, it's basically only columnar in the sense that um, an insert is already many stack traces and um, their values associated with each other, but they all have the same timestamp, basically. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And so that first level is uh, also arrow records. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and then the subsequent levels are parquet, right? That's correct. Okay. What What was the the reasoning behind making that leap from arrow to parquet <laughs> as you go down the subsequent levels? So, uh, like to be hundred percent transparent, we haven't truly figured out um, when the right time is uh, to to kind of pivot into parquet. Mm -hmm. Our current theory is kind of maybe we'll actually get away with only ever having um, arrow as part of the like ingestion node, and only when it ends up on object storage is it um, going to be parquet. Um, but at the moment, the L1 layer, or sorry, the L0 layer is arrow, and when then compaction gets triggered, um, it gets turned into um, parquet. But all of this is still in memory. Um, okay. The reason for that is basically arrow has this wonderful property that you can do like O of one accesses to anything um, within that error record. But that also fundamentally prevents you from doing some more sophisticated encodings to save memory and save disk space, right? Mm -hmm. And Parquet is that format that's basically arrow, but allows doing that. Um, a lot of Parquet and arrow is like one-to-one, -one, um, like binary compatible yeah. when the same encodings are being used. Gotcha. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting design. I guess um, I'm curious. 
how you would contrast this if you're familiar at all with uh, InfluxDB's IOX work that they've been doing. Uh, because it, you know, from a layman, it looks fairly similar to me when I was reading over it. I was like, okay, they're using Parquet, uh, they're using DataFusion. Uh, it, it has a lot of the same components. So how would you differentiate between what you're doing and what they're doing? So um, I think the, the major difference is, um, first of all, we actually had lots of calls with um, Paul Dix um, and Andrew Lamb when we started working on this um, because we saw the same similarity, right? Um, but this was all like two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we were all super interested in this, in this space. And so we were just kind of all ex exchanging uh, knowledge and thoughts. Um, and so somewhat naturally, we, we ended up building things that look quite similar to each other. But I think the major difference is InfluxDB IOX is still trying to be a general purpose database. Um, we are not trying to be a general purpose database. We are laser focused on observability and observability only. And what I mean by that is essentially that data is always going to be immutable. And so essentially it's the nature of observability data, right? Like a server doesn't, after the fact, say, hey, this log line was actually something different, right? Um, so this allows us to do some super interesting um, kind of optimizations on this data, on the way that the um, system works and so on that the general purpose database can't do. Um, but we're not trying to be a general purpose database, right? And so that um, can go as far as basically our distributed system um, within Polar Signals looks a little bit like a CRDT where because everything's just append only, we can just kind of gossip all the changes around and eventually everything's always gonna be consistent and always going to be complete. Um, that doesn't really work or it's way more complicated um, in a world where data is mutable. Um, or our isolation mechanism. Basically, we um, are, we're, we were inspired by this, um, I forget exactly what the Google paper was called, but basically these batch transactions where we can release transactions in batches because we're basically just waiting for this, this next set of transactions um, all to be complete because nobody needs to actually read their own writes um, because Again, it's machines writing this data and humans accessing this data. The human doesn't know that this data was already written, right? So reading your own rights doesn't really make sense in our system. Gotcha, gotcha. So um, I had another question. Hang on a minute here. Uh, oh yeah, jumping back, we were talking about uh, the the I, I would call it metadata earlier. You're saying you're only recording the the frames into FrostDB, right? And at some point, the human needs to see like, okay, well, this is actually a function with parameters and stuff. So how does that part work? So um, basically, um, this is the other part of um, binaries. So there's um, something called debug infos. Um, and this is something that a compiler outputs, basically, um, to do exactly this matching. Um, and what we do is we basically, during the ingestions, we record which offsets have we seen before? Which ones haven't we seen before? Because then we asynchronously do these lookups and write them into a separate database um, where we can then do fast lookups basically um, for the symbolization at query time. Um, and so this is kind of um, the, the other part of it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, one final question that just occurred to me, you know, oftentimes, uh, what's most interesting in terms of sampling is when something bad is happening and when something bad is happening, it is not always the case that, that durability is all that great and that you get the samples that you need and stuff. 
uh, is there anything you guys do to, to not lose some of the samples, especially under high load or, you know, with flaky disks or flaky network? How, how do you guys think about, um, you know, instability in this architecture? So one really awesome thing um, about this like eBPF architecture is that if there is like extremely high CPU pressure and um, the user space program can't like, let's say grab all this data in time and send it off, um, it actually just ends up accumulating further and further um, in these BPF maps. And so eventually we'll just say, okay, this, all of this data was collected, but it was actually collected over 13 seconds as opposed to 10 seconds, right? Um, and so this is how we have kind of this natural mechanism that kind of still ends up working, but not impacting your system uh, too much. Um, it's essentially all dictated by how much load your system is putting onto the entire node. Um, and the agent tends to be very, very lightweight. Gotcha. So there's some built-in buffering essentially in memory. And then I think the argument would be, well, if you lose the machine or, or, or something really bad happens, you lose that data, well, we're sampling anyway. And so uh, nothing's going to be 100%. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. But typically... Sorry, do you do anything clever around like dynamically adjusting the sampling or, you know, when something interesting or anomalous is happening, doing more samples or anything like that? Or is it pretty much just linear? We're always doing X samples per second. So um, the default is that we just always do 19, uh, 19 hertz per CPU core, uh, which actually just ends up being relatively little. Um, but the point is, um, like I said earlier, the longer you do this, the higher the statistical significance gets. Um, and so the base load is actually very, very minimal. As a matter of fact, we have yet to find a customer that can actually distinguish between just general CPU noise and our product being, um, being deployed. Um, uh, sorry, where was I? Um, we were, I was talking about dynamically adjusting the sampling or. Right. We, we do have kind of a secondary mechanism, um, where, you know, this whole system was built so that we would profile the entire infrastructure, right. And the important part about this, and this is also something that came straight out of this Google paper, Google said, you have to profile all of your infrastructure all the time in exactly the same ways. Um, because only then can you actually compare things, right? And you can look at everything in a single report and say, this function is worth optimizing, especially if you're optimizing for cost, right? This is the function that's worth optimizing at all. That said, um, Google also acknowledged there are cases where you want to do profiling for one specific process more. And so we have this mechanism also. Um, it's relatively unsophisticated at this point because we were much more focusing on the system-wide and you know, it's difficult enough of a problem to solve. But we have this mechanism where you can um, basically do the scraping that we were traditionally doing. Um, and you can say through like a Kubernetes annotation, for example, that you know this thing I want to um, profile right now um, at a very high frequency, let's say 100 hertz or something, right? Like whatever high means in that, um, in that context. And then you can, it, it will start scraping that um, like Go, Go application, for example, um, while that annotation is Gotcha. Set. And does that annotation require a restart of the process or is it something you can do dynamically? Okay, fantastic. So if, if go ahead. But, but it does require that this process is instrumented with this like HTTP endpoint um, where we can grab the profiling data. Yeah. But there's nothing stopping us from building this into the agent at one point um, in the future. What we're currently... Um, focusing on is essentially closing the gap on just about any language. So I, I like, it's not a lie, but like um, something incomplete from what I was saying earlier is we do sometimes need to have specific language support, 
Um, and this goes for, especially for interpreted languages like Python or Ruby, where if we do the typical thing of what we talked about so far, what you would get is the stack traces of the Ruby interpreter or the Python interpreter itself. Probably not super useful for most people writing Python, right? Unless you're actually working on the Python interpreter yourself. Um, what we need to do is essentially build a custom unwinder that realizes, oh, actually I'm in the like Python interpreter loop right now. Um, and then switch to the Python interpreter and say, okay, um, that ends up reading memory from the Python process and figures out what does the Python interpreter think right now is the current function call stack. Because at the end of the day, interpreters look like a virtual CPU. They have stacks themselves and so on. And so we need to just figure out what does the interpreter, how does the interpreter do that and essentially re-implement it in EDPF to do the same thing. Yeah. And my guess is that that probably adds significant complexity to the caching you're doing. I don't know if I'm, I'm wrong there, um, but what does this lookup table we were talking about look like in a world where the in interpreter is in, in between and, and doing stuff? So um, it's actually, it's, it's just different, It's actually, but it's more like frame pointers actually, um, because it's basically this in-memory structure that has all this information of how to, how to unwind in memory. And so we don't actually have to have any of these unwind tables. All we need to know is I am currently in a Python interpreter. Um, gotcha. That's okay. that's the amount of um, metadata that we have, which is still not insignificant if you're thinking about um, the entire host scale, right? Like there can easily be tens of thousands of processes on a single Linux machine. So thus far, we have been talking about uh, sampling and stack traces confined to one system. Uh, you know, earlier you mentioned Jaeger, uh, there's a lot of distributed trace stuff. How do you think about the work you're doing with polar signals and the CPU sampling and park and all that, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the distributed trace uh, side of the world? Yeah, great question. Um, so we can actually already attach arbitrary key value pairs to stack traces and therefore further differentiate them, even if it was the exact same stack trace. Um, and so um, with distributed tracing, all that means is we'll attach the distributed tracing ID to these um, stack traces. And therefore we can, we'll be able to say, and we can, we can say, we can already do this today. Um, we can say this CPU time was actually coming exactly from this um, request or vice versa, right? You're coming from a distributed trace and you want to understand, okay, this, this span was way larger than I expected to be. What was this, the CPU activity during this time? We can directly attribute it to that um, to that um, request. Okay. Uh, how does that work? Is, is that something that uh, requires like cooperation from a service mesh or the web framework you're using? I guess I'm kind of curious about how you actually tie this stuff back together with that RPC call that's coming yeah. in. Yeah. So that there, there are two ways, the one that already exists today and the one that you know hypothetically will exist in the future. Uh, the one that exists today is the one that requires instrumentation. It essentially requires cooperation from the user space pro uh, program, so our like Go service, let's say, uh, to say, okay, this um, is currently our distributed tracing ID um, when profiling occurs, basically, right? Um, now, if we go back, right, like we're already reading process memory to do the unwinding with Python, uh, with, for a Python process, for example. It's not significantly more complicated to end up reading some memory within the Go process to figure out, oh, this was actually the, the distributed tracing ID set onto the context, for example, right? So um, this is absolutely going to happen. 
Um, we just haven't gotten to it, basically. Yeah, that's amazing. And very, uh, very much aligned with your philosophy, like zero effort just works out of the box, right? That would be exactly. pretty cool to just drop it in and automatically you're getting distributed trace and CPU profile uh, stuff in, in the system. Yeah, it's definitely going to happen. Basically, our, our entire strategy has been, you know, first, we want to be able to capture any process on the planet, basically support any language out there. And then we'll continue to increase the, the features um, of the profiler and also end up building other profilers. Other things that people are interested in are like, where do memory allocations happen, right? Um, where does network IO happen? Where does disk IO happen? All these things. Gotcha. I guess this is a nice segue into future work. So we've already talked about one, which is adding, uh, you know, the distributed trace, trace support transparently. Um, what other things are you guys thinking about uh, on any of these projects, FrostDB, Parka, or Polar Signals? Yeah, so I think one thing that I'm um, particularly excited about is something that's uh, called profile-guided optimization. So this is not um, very much a feature of any of these um, projects. It's more of a higher-level concept. So profile-guided optimizations have also kind of been around since the 1970s. That's when we first saw some mentions of this. And basically what it is is you're passing your compiler profiling data. And therefore, the compiler can make opinionated decisions about how to compile this code and basically apply optimizations that it wouldn't usually apply. But because it has this profiling data, it can now apply them and knows they're definitely going to be good based on this data. Um, and Google and like Facebook have written about this pretty extensively and have shown that just doing this can get you anywhere from a 10% to a 30% improvement. No code changes. And so how does that work? Is that something where uh, it's done dynamically at runtime behind the scenes? Or is that something where when you're compiling, like it's something that goes into LLVMs, you know, okay. It's the latter. Um, okay. it, that's exactly what it is. It's basically, it's a flag where you pass in a file that contains profiling data. That's, gotcha. that's all this. GCC, LLVM, they've all been able to do this for ages, thanks to Google, Facebook, and so on. Um, some, some really interesting, um, like just-in-time compilers have also been doing this for some time. There's actually a reason why it's called the Java Hotspot VM. It's exactly what it does. It essentially records what are the hotspots of code that are frequently you know, being executed, and it then figures out, okay, this is how I actually should be recompiling it again because it will be running better. Gotcha. That, that'll be really interesting. Interesting. All right. Uh, well... I've got everything I wanted out of you. Uh, where can people find you? And is there anything uh, you want to call out that I've missed? Um, so it's pretty easy. It's polarsignals.com. Um, we have uh, both a Discord for Polar Signals. If you have any questions about you know, anything that we talked about today, we also have a separate uh, Discord server for the Parka project. It's P-A-R-C-A. -A. Um, uh, there's also the website, parka.dev. Um, it's completely separate. It's a separate brand and separate everything, completely independent from Polar Signals. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find us. Please, you know, try try the project. We we uh, all, always love to hear about the magic of when people see profiling data across their entire infrastructure for the very first time. Because it turns out, even the most sophisticated organizations out there probably haven't seen this across their entire infrastructure. And so one thing that I love talking about is one of our early customers, uh, Materialize. Um, you know, they're a database company. In case people are not familiar, they're basically a streaming database. They're already very conscious about performance. The first time they've deployed this on production, within hours, they found a 35% improvement that was fleet-wide, right? Like one change that they immediately were able to see because of this that they weren't able to see before uh, that basically you know, cut their AWS build by 35%. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care.